Thank you so much for tuning in to She's All Over the Place with Kiriaki. That's me. Welcome back to She's All Over the Place. Hey, hey, hope all is well. The Tribeca Film Festival is going on right now. It's pretty exciting nonstop, and I'm excited to share more with you soon. This is the first time I've ever done this, but last week I had Eric Jensen on, and we talked about his debut Broadway performance in New York City, the collaboration with Andy Warhol and Basquiat, this amazing epic story. And then we went so in-depth. The second um, part of the episode got more into his TV and film career. And so, um, like I said, this is the first time I've ever done this, but what I'm going to do is leave in the show notes the full episode from last week if you weren't able to catch it. And this episode here is the second part to the interview where we focus more on TV and film. We even talk about painting and music and just being an overall artist. And he's also a director and a writer. And he talks about his upcoming uh, project with his daughter and his wife. So definitely uh, tune into the show notes. Enjoy the episode. And uh, again, check the link below if you want to hear the full episode from last week. I wanted to make sure to hone in for uh, all the TV and film fanatics. He's been on amazing shows, and I'm going to drop it right here so you can hear his bio. And, you know, he was on The Mindhunter, recurring with David Fincher, epic director, House of Cards, Mr. Robot. The the list goes on. I'm blown away, and uh, I'm glad we met, and I'm glad I have a new friend, uh, mentor, role model, who to look up to, green flags, red flags, teaching entrepreneurs and people in the entertainment industry ethical ways of being because there's so much crap out there and we you know normalize it and think that's the way that it is and I know in part uh, that happened to me earlier on in my career too after I was already successful on tv shows and in movies you know I met some people and they were really abrasive and uh, you know I'm not blaming or shaming it was just a, a part of my life journey and experience and we all get to learn and grow and uh, learn that we people treat us how we allow them to treat us. Uh, So anyways, (laughs) that's kind of all over the place, but enjoy the episode. Thank you so much. I am so excited. I have a fellow thespian with me today. Also, Eric Jensen is an actor, producer, screenwriter, and he appeared regularly in both seasons of the ABC series For Life. Other TV credits include major arcs on The Walking Dead, Mindhunter, and Mr. Robot. Appearances on The Americans, House of Cards, Elementary, The Blacklist, and many, many more, including his critically acclaimed portrayal of legendary New York Yankee Thurman Munson in The Bronx is Burning. Film credits include the upcoming Viral with Blair Underwood and Elfrey Woodward, Black Knight, the Love Letter, and more than two dozen indie films. His theater credits include, as an actor, the collaboration on Broadway opposite Paul Bettany and Jeremy Pope, the Pulitzer Prize-winning production of Disgrace at the Lincoln Center. This list goes on and on and on, and so make sure you tune into the show notes so you can see other projects Eric has been working on. Eric, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Thank you so much, Katie. I am I am all over the place with you. It sounds like it sounds like we're cut from the same cloth. Love that. Love that. <laughs> so first, where are you from? And when did you get the intuitive hit, the bug that you are an actor, performer, writer, director? Like, let's start there. 
Okay, great. Uh, well, I'm from a tiny, tiny town in northern Minnesota, uh, northwestern Minnesota, called Detroit Lakes. It's about 45 miles east of Fargo, North Dakota. It is, it's somewhere for me, but for other people, it would probably be considered the middle of nowhere. And um, actually, my interest in acting started there. Um, I was always a big reader, and I'd always read a lot of comic books and books and stuff like that. And when my family moved into the community to be close to my grandmother, uh, we joined a, a theater company called Playhouse 412 the local community theater. And so I, as a kid, I was doing things like The Music Man and Camelot and, you know, uh, shows like that, you know, sort of the standard uh, the standard musicals that every community theater in the country does. And it was a lot of fun. And I did it with my parents and uh, hung around adults a lot and felt very grown up and really dug being on stage as an 11 year old. Wow, that's so yeah. cool. And, and then, you had the support from your family. That's so nice. I did. I did. My I definitely come from a really broken home. But um, this two-year period where we all were doing community theater together was pretty idyllic. And I discovered that no matter... Then I ended up moving around a lot because my parents got divorced. But I found out wherever I moved, there was always some kind of a theater community there, either at a high school or, or with a community theater. And I moved, I don't know, eight or nine times after that. And um, ended up at a high school called Apple Valley uh, High in uh, outside of Minneapolis, a uh, suburb. And uh, there's this uh, theater teacher named Dennis Swanson, who was my high school theater teacher. And uh, the first show that I was in, I had some behavioral issues, so I didn't make the second show. But um, Denny took me under his wing and, and really tried to teach me how to be a better person and a better human being, because that's not the kind of training I was getting at home. And uh, and he really took me under his wing and really introduced me to the rest of my life. He saved my life. Uh, I, I miss Denny very, very much. Um, we were doing all sorts of weird plays. We we're doing things by Eugenia Nesco and Samuel Beckett. And and uh, Tom Stoppard. And, and he just he built a wonderful theater community for all of us kids to be a part of. A bunch of us ended up going to Juilliard, Carnegie Mellon, NYU. Uh, a bunch of us ended up graduating high school and getting into some pretty prestigious theater schools. So I'm proud of that. Wow. Congratulations. That's so Thank neat. You. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. And, you know, something you said that's really important is community and how you wherever you were, you got into community theater, you found communities. And I feel, you know, as actors, a lot of times I know I feel alone and broken in many ways, and it's very competitive. So it's difficult to find, you know, people who are actually your friends who are supporting you. So doing it through like community theater and the ways you do, I feel like for a young entrepreneur who's tuning in, it's really important for them to get involved in their local communities. Yeah, it is. And the other way that I sort of kept to that uh, that rule or that idea or that notion, big part of your community is an act of love. Uh, uh, it requires some sacrifice. Um, but the way that we continued to do it, I came to New York and um, had had a healthy acting career for about 10 years and then met my girlfriend, now wife, Jessica Blank. And uh, we ended up going out into different communities and interviewing people and making documentary theater out of their stories. It's another way for, uh, you know, sort of marginalized communities to get their voices heard. It's one way anyway. And we ended up writing a play called The Exonerated, which is which is pretty well known. And, um, and then uh, another, uh, that was based on interviews with exonerated death row inmates. And then we uh, wrote a play called Aftermath based on our interviews with Iraqi refugees that we interviewed in Jordan. Then we took a couple of years off to make a play about rock and roll. 
And then uh, our most recent play was a play called Coal Country that the two-time Grammy Award winning musician Steve Earle uh, wrote the music for. And it was about a community in West Virginia where 29 coal miners were killed in a horrific and what I believe to be a, an avoidable explosion. And, uh, you know, for all sorts of reasons, reasons of greed and uh, a lack of safety and all sorts of other things that should have been in place to protect these men. And uh, we interviewed survivors of the explosion and family members. And um, and then Steve wrote the music for it. it was a play with music and it's it's one of the ways that i try to stay connected to the world in an unselfish way because being an actor you know this i mean it can be very self-involved and you can be really into your shit and feeling the competition and you really have to build a big ego field in order to handle all the rejection and competition so it's nice to be a listener and to go into communities and listen to people's stories wow i love everything you're saying and i love how you know you met your partner and you're each other's accountability partners and you write together and then you see it through and then you go on with these interests. So it's really important of connecting with people in that authentic way by being mm -hmm. true to yourself and, you know, wanting to hear and be interested in other people's stories. Because as an actor, like the number one thing for us to do is observe. And so right. by, and, doing all this research. So, I mean, you get to learn so much about humanity and history and rewrite and tell stories from your experience. Do you want to share how that is for you? Yeah. I mean, you know, especially for younger people out there, part of the reason that we started making The Exonerated, for example, was because, well, my wife and I had just met and we were super, each individually very creative and we were looking for something to do together so we could hang out together all the time and do something more than just kissing. <laughs> um, and, um, and which was nice. I mean, I'm not knocking it, but, <laughs> you know, um, so anyway, um, you know, so one of the reasons we did it, though, was because uh, there was a, a commercial strike on uh, in the city. The unions were were on strike uh, because the commercial industry was really not so great at that time. Uh, it's still not great. But anyway, um, you know, we needed something to do over the course of this one summer. And um, we decided we'd go out and make our own stuff. And that's really key for any younger uh, people who are listening to this who might want to be performers or who are. I mean, obviously, anybody can get a camera now. It's not hard to make a, a short independent film. You know, my preference is, is that people do it through the union. But, you know, it's not hard for anybody who's creative to pick up a camera or any kind of medium or a, a recording device and make a podcast or make a dramatic podcast or a, a dramatic movie or a comedy uh, or even animation. I mean, all the tools are available to us now that weren't available when I was starting out. And um, it's such a rich world filled with all these valuable tools. And if people can make their own stuff, you're going to have people come to you a lot quicker. It, it beats like having your hands up and begging for a gig. You know what I mean? If you can give yourself that gift, yeah. it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. And it's this energy and rapport that you build in this confidence of knowing within. So then when you meet other people in the industry, you're not desperate, just waiting for a job or waiting for an opportunity. You show you're a team player and you build other skill sets within the industry, which is a massive part of our industry. It's not just one sided. So yeah, yeah, I yeah think that's exactly. really beautiful. 
Exactly. Well, I've been, you know, I've always been a hyphenate. I've always been a actor, writer, director. Uh, I'm not, I'm not as good a producer as my wife. She's the producer in the family, but you know, I've always either wanted to tell stories or help people tell stories or, or have people interpret stories that I've written down. And I've been fortunate to be able to play in all those fields. And when, when one is a little bit scant and there's not a lot of work, say, you know, in voiceover land or whatever, um, I pick it up by doing a lot of TV. And when the TV isn't happening, I end up doing a play, uh, just like the one I did with Paul Bettany and Jeremy Pope. I got very lucky, uh, to do that. Um, it's been a quite a year cause I had a, a health scare and uh, last February I almost died oh, and, sorry. uh, and oh, it's okay. Um, I'm here. Wow. Yeah. It was really intense. I had a, a, a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which some people call a brain aneurysm. And, um, you know, it, it was really devastating. Uh, I didn't have any, um, behavioral or cognitive or physical ailments afterwards, which is super rare. Um, 80% of people that survive it uh, usually have some kind of cognitive or, or physical struggle that they have to go into therapy for. I didn't have any of that. Uh, if anything, it, it cleared my head. Um, and uh, we ended up going to, uh, to see Amelia Clark uh, from Game of Thrones. We ended up going to see her in a, a play of The Seagull in London. And she's had two brain aneurysms. And so this this is how this led directly to me doing the collaboration. I saw her do these amazing performances on stage in the Seagull uh, across from my friend Indira, who was also in the play. Indira hooked Amelia and I up. And after talking to her, um, I decided, well, you know, if she can do it, I can do it. And that's that's how I, I managed to make my Broadway debut. The collaboration came across my desk about two months after I asked my agents to start putting me back up for theater again. Wow, what a yeah. beautiful story. When I do any kind of camera work, um, I really respect the sort of Michael Caine school of acting where you really focus on stillness. Any movement when you're on camera, whether it's for a, whether it's for a film or a play or whatever, any movement that you do on camera, regardless of what it's for, has to be earned um, or justified by the language. Like, oh, I'm, I'm reaching for a glass of water and I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to, I'm going to drink it. You know, um, yeah, so I couldn't do as much physical bodily embodiment of the character as I would on stage, but I didn't need to, you know, because this captures so much, this little frame here. And, you know, uh, within, within this magical little box, you can see, you can see, uh, I believe you can see people, uh, fight. You can see people get vindictive about each other. You can see people fall in love, you know, and, you know, I, uh, I have a book to recommend to anybody out there who wants to learn the most about camera acting that they can buy from a book that isn't about acting. Um, it's a book called uh, In the Blink of an Eye. And it's uh, it's by a very uh, a very famous editor. He's one of the he's one of the uh, uh, his name is Walter Murch, and it's all about editing, and it's all about how film is an editor's medium, and your job really as an actor. This is what I garnered from the book anyway, is to provide raw material for the director and the editor to use in the editing room, mm. and you want to provide them as much raw material with as much range as the director will allow you. On, on set to give them a truthful performance that they can then edit together um, from a variety of sources. And oftentimes you will find that the two shot that they used doesn't necessarily match the, the single that they use of you in terms of it being exactly the same choices or whatever. But, you know, if you're providing them the raw material, you're doing your essential work in, in weaving the story together. You're providing them notes like they're like you're like you're the keys on a piano and you're providing them chords and notes for them to mix. And so keeping that in mind, I knew that the camera would do most of the work for me. Um, so, you know, obviously 
I made sure that I was off book and memorized and all that other stuff. But I never in my life thought that I would book my Broadway debut from the comfort of my office. <laughs> bravo, bravo. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. so cool. That's cool. so cool. Yeah. Um, and thank you so much for the book recommendation. I actually first time hearing about it. So I'm definitely going to read it. <laughs> read it. Definitely. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm like right on it. <laughs> there's another book too, since you're a conversationalist and you like a good conversation, there's another book called Conversations with Walter Murch, which is, which is even better. It's going to make you want to go back and watch Apocalypse Now again, or watch any of his movies that he's edited because there's a, the, the way he talks about it made me feel so loose as an actor. It meant, oh my God, I thought all this responsibility for this performance was on my shoulders, just like it is in the theater. And with film, it's just not the case. Everything is prepared for you when you get there. There's a bunch of work that's gone into it before you arrive. The pressure's on to get five or six takes, but that doesn't mean you have to be perfect every take. In fact, the impulse that I had to keep going in this one take of the first scene that I did for the collaboration is probably what got me the part. You know, my mistake that I made with the lines and the fact that I didn't drop the line and just kept going and just made something up to fill the, fulfill the end of the scene is probably what got it for me. Wow. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Yep. Love that. Very important. I'm just wondering, like, maybe one or two of your favorite films and why. Oh, Gosh, that's a great question. I have my geek favorites, which are Star Wars and and quite possibly the new Dungeons and Dragons movie that's coming out. Um, but that's 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 not that's not the film films that I love. Um, I love uh, Paul Newman. Like I said, is it was a big hero of mine. Um, I loved uh, Cool Hand Luke when I was a kid. Uh, it's basically the story of of Luke. Uh, who's a Paul Newman and he's a vet, I believe is his backstory. And he decides to cut all the heads off these parking meters in his town and they arrest him and they throw him in this uh, chain gang um, in the South and where all the prisoners are treated badly, but he doesn't let it get to him. And he's a, he's a, he's a sort of symbolic sort of Christ-like figure, uh, in the way that it's written and in the way that he plays it, he plays this, plays it with such lightness. And then, alternates that with so much passion and there's just so much truth in his eyes and so much hurt in his heart that he just lets come through. Um, it's just a masterful performance, you know, it's something else. Mm. Um, so that's mm -hmm. one of my favorite mm -hmm. movies. Another favorite movie of mine. Oh, I love dramedies. I love Rachel getting married. If you've ever seen that movie, I love um, this, this year I loved uh, everything everywhere all at once. Um, I really enjoyed the nuance of a lot of the performances in the Fablemans. I thought, uh, is it Michelle Williams who was in that? Um, I didn't see it. I just, I yeah. saw it on the SAG Awards, but yeah. I haven't seen it. It's the story I, of Steven Spielberg, right? It's the story his of his childhood. family, him and his family and yeah. his childhood. Yeah. I, there was something that I really loved about that movie. Uh, you know, it's, it's definitely in my top 10. A, a couple of Spielberg, I had the good fortune to work with him and his wife in a movie many years ago, but a couple of Spielberg movies are in, are in my top 10. E.T. is one of the best movies of all time. It's almost a flawless film, you know, and then I like my big epic films. You know, I like Lawrence of Arabia and a lot of classic Hollywood movies, you know, uh, I like my bad movies. I love Godzilla movies, you know, <laughs> but if I, if I could be in any kind of movie, I would, I would want to be in a star Wars movie, mm. you know, or TV show. Um, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, switching gears. I mean, I, I think I could just go on for like four more hours. So yeah, um, I know. I feel the same way. You're great. <laughs> 
Oh, you're so sweet. So definitely like to touch upon, you know, your successful TV career that we mentioned um, mm. in the beginning of the episode, if you're cool with that. I'm cool with that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm proud of that. Okay. Career. Yeah. I mean, oh that's that's what I spent the most time building in New York. You know, I, I did plays. Uh, I, I could afford, unfortunately, you know, plays don't pay a lot of money. And, um, you know, um, the cost of living is rising in New York. So I could afford to maybe do one play every 18 months from the time that I moved here until now. And that's about what I hewed to, you know, um, although I did take plays of ours to Steppenwolf and to um, CTG in LA, you know, uh, so yeah, so I intended to, I came to New York intending to have a theater career, I ended up having a TV and film career. And then the second that I bopped out to LA to support that, I started getting auditions for all these plays again. So I ended up coming back. But TV wise, like I've worked with some really great people. I worked with uh, uh, Walter Hill, who directed The Warriors and uh, came up with the concept for Alien, the, the first Alien movie. Um, I've worked with, um, I worked with Frank Oz, who is Fozzie Bear and Miss Piggy and Yoda, obviously, and just a great director. Um, there are all these sort of legendary people that I've had the opportunity to work with through television. Um, wonderful director named Seath Mann, uh, another guy named, oh, Walter, I'm forgetting Walter's name. He directed one of the Walking Deads that I was in. I've got a lot of Walters in my head. I've got an Uncle Walter, too. Uh, it'll come to me. You know, uh, Sean Cassidy is a great showrunner, writer, former uh, former um, a teen idol musician from the 70s. But now he's a he's a great showrunner and writer. I had, I've had the opportunity to work at his feet. You know, I, I just, you know... I've found that through television where a lot of people have a second career after they have a big movie or they have a big, you know, a big series or whatever, that there's a lot of real experienced people that I've spent a lot of time asking questions of. You know, I found myself as an actor going up to the cinematographer and saying, okay, what lens are we on? Okay. And why are we on that lens right now? Uh, okay, what, um, what's the, why are we moving the lights here? Like, can't we just keep the same light? He's like, no, because if we do that and we flop the camera around, it's going to look like the light's coming from a different place and it's going to be subconsciously weird on the film. I was like, oh, okay, okay, that's cool. Um, you know, so I was always asking people from makeup to hair, to, to the grips, to, uh, to the director, what exactly they were doing and what their, what their deal was. I've always found what other people do on set to be totally fascinating. So I think for most of my life, I've been training for being a showrunner on a series. And um, that doesn't mean I'll quit acting or directing or whatever. A showrunner gets to do whatever they want to do, really. But now I'm working with, um, as an actor, I've worked with these guys. But now as a writer, I'm working with them. I'm working with a guy named Tom Fontana, who created the TV show Oz and Homicide and uh, City on a Hill, which is his most recent one. And he's just a legendary writer who loves actors. And uh, so I'm writing with him. Uh, Barry Levinson's going to direct that one if we if we get uh, all the approvals we need to get. I'm working with David Simon, who created The Wire. I'm writing with him right now. I'm writing with Ed Burns, uh, who separately on a different project, Ed also created The Wire and Plot Against America and a bunch of other um, a bunch of other wonderful TV TV shows. He's an ex cop and an ex marine. He's a real tough boss. <laughs> but you know, uh, working. Working with all these guys and women, uh, Debs Patterson, who just directed some of the Willow series, you know, it's such a privilege to work because everybody that I get to work with really is at the top of their game. And I feel privileged to bring in my A game because they're bringing theirs. You know, my buddy Hank Steinberg, who was the showrunner on my show, I'm going to spend some time with him this week. And I learned more from just sitting across the dinner table from him during lunch and just listening to how he talked to his director of photography and his directors than I did, you know, 
from going to acting school, you know, just keeping my ears open, you know, and then, so walking dead was a great experience. Uh, Mr. Robot was a great experience. Uh, you know, uh, working with, uh, for David Fincher on, um, on uh, mind Hunter was an incredible experience. Unlike anything I've ever done in my life. It was like playing a piece of classical music. I just uh, consider all these wonderful, wonderful people to be my teachers. And, um, and how is that you know. process when you did that audition? If we, you want to talk about auditioning for David Fincher. I auditioned for David Fincher three or four times before I got that part. And I was like, okay, Mr. Fincher, are you going to bring me to the dance? Or are you going to just keep flirting with me? <laughs> like what's, what's going on here? And, um, but really he was waiting for the right part to come along. That was effortless for me. And which doesn't mean to say that there's not effort on a David Fincher set. Everything is, I've never been more precise in terms of um, continuity. When I set down a pen, I set it, set it down in the exact right place at the exact right angle on the exact right line. When I give a variation on something, I give it within very tight parameters. This is not jazz working with David Fincher. It is a piece of classical music. It is akin to Shakespeare. You know, there is a technique involved. You know, I even had a, um, I even had some assistance from a, there was something that that there was elastic that held my shirt down so the shirt collar wouldn't shift between takes. And I did, I don't know how many things, I think I did 12 takes from each angle, which is completely unusual. I usually do three or maybe four. If I don't get it on the first take, I'm, I, I'll get it by the third or fourth take. But I think it was expected by everybody that we would do 12 takes that day from this angle and 12. That's what they scheduled for. It was so mind blowing to be so still and to have them pick up so much. And to, I played a child psychiatrist in it and I played the part very seriously, but the way David filmed it um, and his crew filmed it, there was so much humor in it, which totally surprised me because I wasn't playing the joke. I was just playing the straightforward version of the scene that I felt in my body and in my head. Um, but you know, uh, everything is about stillness on a Fincher set. I hope I get to work with him again because mm -hmm. I would really like to work with him more long-term than just this, uh, this one little job. Yeah. And then where did you shoot it? I believe we shot, uh, Mindhunter in Pittsburgh, uh, which is, which is where I went to school. That's where I went to Carnegie Mellon. Um, so it was a nice, a nice trip, full circle trip back home for me in a way. Um, but we shot, we shot almost all of that in Pittsburgh. I did two or three episodes, I think. And then how, for the actor listening, how was the audition process? Were, were you on the Zoom or were you in person? This was on was tape. That? My wife put me on tape for all of these. So uh, it was it was all on, it was constantly on tape. That people had started taping pre-pandemic uh, a little bit more from people's apartments and stuff like that. And we just lit it well and um, and taped it in front of our, our little blue curtain uh, that we have hung up over there. And it involved, I think, preparing for the Fincher audition. I knew that, I know that he's very specific about about getting all the words right and getting all the ands in the right place and using the semicolons and the commas. So I wasn't just memorizing lines. I was also memorizing the punctuation without putting too much oomph in the meaning. I still had to listen to my partner. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I had to keep, I, it felt like juggling a lot of clubs. You know, it wasn't juggling balls. This was juggling clubs because they're spinning in the air and they're going around at the same time. But you have to be perfectly still in your center in order for it to work. So I, I think the the three auditions that I did for him that didn't that didn't work actually taught me a lot about finding what did. Um, it was for different projects. No, it was all for Mindhunter. It was all for oh, Mindhunter. Yeah, got it. So they I, had you retape and retape and retape. Yeah, yeah. They had me. They had me tape for three different 
for three different parts before I booked the fourth one. Yeah. Different yeah. roles. Different roles. Yeah, absolutely. Same, so your agent and is just like, what? what's the explanation from the agent? It, they love they want you. you to read for this one. They, they will, love oh, you. They, they love, they love you. you. They really they love you, and they want to have you. They want to have you do something on this show. You know, you you must have gotten close in the last two or three. <laughs> you know, and then Fincher did have me in uh, for an audition uh, for a movie uh, later on, um, which which means I'm still on his radar. Which means you know we'll we'll end up working together someday. Just it just depends on what you know. Um, he's into different shit that I'm into, like his obsessions. I, you know, we didn't. We didn't. I think he. I think he likes music as much as I do, but his obsessions differ very much from mine. But I think that's the reason that we work well together. Is there's so much to learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's he's. Um, there's a lot of filmmakers that I vibe with because we have very similar interests. We like The Grateful Dead, or we like you know uh, we like mixtapes, or we like uh, particular movies, or whatever, or particular directors, or particular styles of filmmaking, or we have the same kind of looseness. I'm very. I can be very loose on set. I'm most comfortable when I'm when I'm super loose but with Fincher I had to be super disciplined and and a little bit tight and that was that was cool it was it was cool relaxing into that but you know he's just a, one of those unique geniuses that you just get a chance to work for and you want to do it again and again and again because you know yeah I think because of uh your director hat skills because mm. like obviously Meisner blue shirt blue shirt Meisner yeah it's forget all punctuation so I don't think Meisner is this technique at all but because of you being a director having that discipline with the punctuations um because you know they're they're different parts of the the brain left brain right brain muscle memory and so it's a it's a skill set to to be able to harness mm-hmm. rock and roll yeah. is different from jazz is different from classical music which means your approach is different it's all music and we all enjoy it in various ways but like even within rock and roll you know punk is very very different from r&b is very different from the blues even though they use the same basic chords and oftentimes the same chord structures in their most basic forms, they're very different from each other. It requires different technique. It requires a different touch. So why would you approach one director's work the same as another director's? You know, um, I think another good piece of advice for younger people out there who are working, there's no time. I know auditions come and they come quick and they come fast. And there's not a lot of time to do research and even memorize the lines because things move so fast these days. But if you get a chance to watch uh, a great movie by the person you're auditioning for. Don't copy the style of the movie, but you can see where their interests are. You know, you can see where they're super, whether they're super interested in the pause between lines or whether they like things quick. You know, uh, there's some directors who really revel in um, the moment after a scene is over. You know, um, uh, uh, there's some directors who really revel in the rhythm of language. Um, and really like his actors to be right on top of each other when they, when they work together. Um, you know, so my approach for every director now is different because I make sure to watch at least one thing that they've directed to sort of freshen me up before I go into an audition a couple of days later. Wow. That is such a beautiful layer. It's so important. I loved hearing that. It gave me a new, um, foundation of understanding, um, because I do that. I, I will, if I have the time, 
I'll watch a tone of a show if it's a TV show. And if it's not available, like uh, like the trailer or just clips on YouTube or, mm-hmm. or I'll watch a film to get like the vibe, right, of the director. But to do what you just said, the beats, the pauses, the moment after the scene ends, like mm-hmm. the the rhythmic, the language, it's, it's wow, that's so powerful. Thank you. That's yeah, smart. Yeah, I'm friends with this guy, uh, Peter Hedges, who wrote directed i think the squid and the whale was his i think um something is bill is back oh his son is uh is an actor as well and they did a movie that came close to winning an oscar a couple of years ago he's just a beautiful storyteller but it's all about the emotion between the lines for him um it's all about the emotion exists after the person says the terrible thing or beautiful thing that they're going to say um uh, what's eating gilbert grape was his um, he wrote that, uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. You know, there's some directors who like a lot of emotion and like very lush emotion in their stuff. And there's some directors who are a little cooler and like to hang back a little bit. You know, um, Quentin Tarantino likes things to be cool until they explode. Um, you know, I don't know if there's, I mean, I guess you could call parts of Pulp Fiction a love story. <laughs> <laughs> right up until the point where he stabs her in the heart with a hypodermic needle. But I mean, that's true love right there. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. But you know, he doesn't Tarantino doesn't spend a lot of time in the bedroom. He doesn't spend a lot of time having actors like sort of fawn over each other with their eyes. He likes he likes shoot 'em ups. He likes uh he likes uh ninja movies. He likes uh, samurai films and so his stuff is he likes westerns. And so his stuff is filled with that kind of language, you know. So even if you can get somebody who's an influence on a director and watch their movie, that's sometimes even more valuable. Um, because you're saying, Oh, he's really into Sergio Leone, the the Italian director, um, who did all the um, spaghetti westerns back in the day starring Clint Eastwood. Well, I mean, you look at that and you look at Django and there's like so much stuff that those uh, Leone films have in common with with uh, Tarantino movies because there is deep, big influence. He really loves that stuff. So you learn a lot from people's influences as well. So it's it's great. What's great, if you get in a conversation with a director, ask a director what their influences are and they'll go on forever. They'll feel like they just had the best conversation in their life because they get to talk about their favorite filmmakers. And, you know, Steven Spielberg doesn't want to sit around talking about E.T. all day, but I just saw an interview with him and he could talk about Lawrence of Arabia for hours and hours and hours on end. And like, and why? And why it's a beautiful movie and why it's such a difficult film and why it portrays humanity and sort of wide sweeping swaths of, of backdrop uh, amidst uh, these beautiful close-ups of, of Peter O'Toole with his deep blue eyes and giving his all, giving all of his heart to, uh, to this very empty man uh, that he's portraying. It's pretty, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. So if you ever want to really get on with a director, just simply ask them what their influences are and let them, let them go. They will walk away from you thinking you're the most interesting person in the world. Smart. That that's a great tip. Great tip. And speaking of Quentin Tarantino, uh, shout out to uh, Joanna Ray uh-huh. because yeah, when I met her, uh, she cast me in the Bad Lieutenant. And when I met her, oh right on. Oh my gosh. Yeah. She for she at that point when I met her. She, you know, told me she uh, was in casting for 25 years and she cast all of his films. Uh-huh. Right? right on. Sure. And and also I met. Um, you did that in New Orleans, right? 
Yeah. 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 yeah and yeah. then um, Jenny Ju, she's uh, she was there too. She was her casting partner at the time. Not uh-huh. sure if they're still working together or not, but yeah, it was it was fantastic. Um, you know, to shout out to the lady casting directors, and it was just so amazing when when I met her. I just felt like legendary just to be in such great company. So yeah, totally. you, when you're when you're in those moments, it's like really to acknowledge and appreciate them. It's so important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, casting directors. There should be an Oscar category for casting directors. There isn't. Um, I think that should change. They are your most stalwart allies. Um, if you can bring in good work, even on the ones you fail on, as long as you can bring in a choice or bring in some kind of work for them, that's a take on what they have. It might not be the best choice for the movie, but it might be really interesting for them. You know, I always try to bring a casting director who I, especially ones that I have a close relationship with, I always try to bring them in my best work and, and feel a little sad when life gets to me. And I I'm not able to memorize as hard as I usually do. And when I'm not able to put in the hundred, because life happens, you know, uh, when I'm not able to put in, when I'm not able to put in the 100% for somebody, it, it really, it really bums me out. So I try to make extra time for those casting directors who have been my, my most loyal allies in this business. They're very important yeah. people. Yeah. Love the casting directors. So since you touched on the subject, I mean, if it's okay, like, mm-hmm. like, how is it for you, like you said, with mental wellness and, you know, giving it your all and, and maybe not being able to be off book? Nowadays, I feel, let me know if I'm wrong, because you probably audition way more than me. But through my journey thus far, I feel they give less material than used to, like before they you get like five different scenes, 26 pages, 12 pages, two Sometimes. days go. Yeah. Yeah. So how is it when you can't be off book? Like, what do you do? Well, I mean, it depends. Part of it is a volume problem for me, especially since finishing the collaboration. There's a lot of people now who, who fortunately want to hire me and, or at least, or at least want to audition me and who are at least considering it. And so like, if I get three auditions that have to be turned over in 72 hours and two of them are nine pages long of nine pages of sides, like three to four scenes, that's a lot of material to give an actor for them to be able to to memorize. You know, I, I hope I'm not poking the bear by saying this. You know, um, sometimes memorized enough has to be enough. And there's things that I've booked that I, I was looking down at the page quite a bit during the audition and felt like, well, I was looking down at the page. They're not going to hire me, but they're seeing my interpretation. And they've seen actors on set hold the lines and get ready to do the scene or whatever. You know, usually for those situations where I've got 14 pages of sides to memorize and there's a lot of action and I got to hold up a gun and tell people up against the wall and there's a bunch of shit going on. Um, for those, I'll have the sides kind of at the ready and I'll, I'll try to go over the main beats of it and I'll let the emotion carry me. But, you know, for, for more specific things, I just had this interesting audition for something that takes place in West Virginia. It's a ghost story. And, um, it's uh, and it was playing this guy who's in charge. Uh, I can't go into too much more detail than that, but he's a he's a powerful guy in the community um, and definitely the the villain of the movie, but a nice guy villain. You know what I mean? And that was only four pages. So I was able to give it due diligence and memorize it. But, you know, on the flip side, this other audition that I got, great movie, super cool, great pedigree, a lot of awesome people in it. They sent me 14 pages of what it was effectively the same scene. 
And so they were all action scenes, which means they want to check that I can do action. But I could have actually given them a lot more if they'd sent me one action scene and a talkie scene. You know, if they'd sent me half the number of pages, I could have done I could have done twice the work for them, you know. And that's sometimes that's first time directors, you know, who really need to see what somebody can do. But, you know, sometimes it's people who haven't been around actors a lot. There's a lot of editors who become directors and maybe don't know that we're not memorizing machines. We're not machines where people, you know, but, you know, it all depends. I, I tried, I try to be cold off book for everything. And, Mm -hmm. um, uh, as long as I'm 75 to 80% there, I feel like that's a successful audition for me. But again, you know, I, 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 I think that because people are self-taping, I think the powers that be feel like we have all the time in the world and, and we don't. You know, and so you, you've got to you've got to decide for yourself what your best. I always feel better. Like, for example, for the collaboration, I was I, I memorized that all before the first rehearsal. Now, of course, the play changed through rehearsal. So I had to memorize it again and again and again. But, you know, um, this movie that I'm doing with Sadie this summer, I'll be completely off book for the whole movie. So I don't have to think about it. You know, uh, by the time we by the time we start shooting, I don't want to spend the days memorizing my lines and directing and talking to the camera person and making sure that the location is solid. I can't I can't do all those things at once. So the memorization is the one thing I have control over. And that's the last time an actor has control over the script is mm-hmm. the is the memorization mm-hmm. phase. So, so I mean, I have some mixed feelings about it, but I feel like as long as I'm 80% there, that's, that's uh, respectful and, um, and isn't blowing people off. I tried in my early years, I tried like doing the, the uh, Spencer Tracy, I don't like to rehearse thing and just, you know, read off the page in the room, but that wasn't really working. And I didn't under my, in my young, my young self didn't understand that Spencer Tracy was a genius. I wasn't a genius. So, (laughs) so having, having that approach wasn't the best for me. You know, I like to, I like to be fully off book before, uh, before I hit a project. And then lastly on this topic. So with the self tapes and I've gone in when I was in LA and even here in New York, when I went to a reader, just because I didn't want to deal with the editing, I didn't want to deal with the anxiety of all the other stuff. I just wanted to show up, act, leave, and just receive the link to send, right? Mm-hmm. I just didn't want to do it. But now these taping services, right? And sometimes I did some home auditions where I was with my mom and, you know, she would be like the DP recording mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> uh, Thanks, re- mom. And read it. Thanks, mom. And reading with me, but her voice sounds like uh, like a 14-year-old. So it's like really particular. <laughs> She's so innocent and cute. So it's so particular of like what she can read with me. Right. But, but she's great. But, you know, people are doing iPads, right? And like not uh-huh. having paper in hand and, yeah. and having iPads and literally like these taping services place offer and they charge extra money for it by the way oh. but um for you to read it off an of ipad do you do anything off a of ipad um a digital screen or do you always have the paper and even if you have it memorized you hold the paper as well the i do hold paper um but um the only thing the, the thing that my attention should be most on is not an ipad in front of me or uh, or um or uh, uh, uh cue cards or anything like that the thing my attention should be on is my partner and you know if i'm reading be- human behavior and responding to human behavior it's much better than and i can as a director i can see when people's eyes are moving on an ipad like i can tell when they're reading the lines 
it's subtle, but I can see their eyes pop back and forth because I've spent so much time in, in, in an editing bay. And, you know, to be able to have that cool focus uh, that one needs to hold a moment on camera, I need to know that somebody can do that within themselves. You know what I mean? I don't want somebody showing up on set having to be fed their lines, you know, like, so if I see them doing, like I said, about 80% off book and I can catch their eyes at the beginning of the scene and in the middle and the most important part, then at the end, then that's the real, that's the real, oh, they can really do this. They can really hold this together. You know, I understand people have lives and that, you know, but if somebody's, if somebody, if I'm on the fence about somebody about that, um, then we have a callback for them and we tell them to make sure that they're as off book as they possibly can be. And, 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 uh, but that's what I'm weirdly feeling now is like the lack of callbacks. Like there aren't a lot of callbacks anymore. Like people just do it off the tape and, and hire off the, the first tape, which is kind of great, but also a little bit weird. And, you know, um, I, I love yeah. callbacks. I love a chance to come back and give something a little extra flavor or do what the director needs me to do on it a little different. You know, it gives me a lot of confidence to have a callback, but that's kind of, that's kind yeah. of gone away in terms of the, the same way that in-person auditions have gone away. Yeah. Um, my very first experience was, uh, in 2005, John Papsideros and, um, Wendy O'Brien, Wendy mm. O'Brien was working in, uh, John Papsideras office at the time. And um, I went out for It's Always Sunny and they booked me off the tape. I was in the room with Wendy O'Brien, mm. but then I didn't have a callback. They just booked me right off the tape. And that was in 2005. So I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> I think it's pretty good. I, I, I loved doing Always Sunny. Did you do, did, I did an episode of that. Did you like doing it? Oh my God. Yeah. I was a uh, season one Charlie's prom date. Oh, that's cool. I was, I was. <laughs> It was a creepy guy who attended children's pageants. <laughs> so, which season? Which uh, I want to say season eight, but I I oh. I can't I can't quite I can't quite remember. All I remember was I was on set with some of the funniest people in the world, and all of the comedy made me really uncomfortable. Um, mm. Really good, I think. Really good comedians have that effect on people. You know, it made me really uncomfortable. You know, but I mean. I got to work with Danny DeVito, which was a dream come true. And, and, um, wow. with all those other, with all those other, other, uh, people, which is, uh, which is a lot of fun, you know, Rob yeah. and Greg and Charlie day, everybody. Yeah. yeah. I was like, man, you guys all did this yourselves, you know, like what, what an yeah. incredible, what an incredible, um, thing you guys have created together, you know, talk about community yeah. and ensemble. I mean, that's a great one. Oh yeah. 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 My brother, my brother keeps, um, saying, yeah, like contact the people. Like, um, he, I don't know if they're doing a, comeback or reunion he's like get in there like get in there so you and me should tag team and like reach out to them and be like write our characters back in yes exactly <laughs> my character gets out of prison and goes to prom no <laughs> it's terrible Something. i just i just i just first for a while there in mid-career when my grandmother was still alive i was playing a, just a series of bad men and she finally called me one day after her friends watched a Law and Order, in which I did something particularly egregious as the character. And she she said to me, "Why can't you play nice men?" <laughs> I was like, "I'm sorry, Grandma. I just have one of those faces." <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah. So yeah. yeah. Always sunny. Yeah. It was. Uh, I've I've only done a couple single camera comedies. Uh, I did that, and I did. Um, oh, Tina Fey's show. Uh, the uh, behind the scenes at NBC show. Oh, I can't remember the name of it. You know, it stars Tina Fey and uh, Alec Baldwin. Mm, I don't. I, it's not coming to my head it's right not, now. It's not coming to my head. I I played uh, <laughs> I played the uh, Transylvanian ambassador to the UN, 
which was a lot of fun. So I got to do my Dracula voice. I am not wow. a vampire. Yeah, no, it was really fun. It was really fun. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I forgot the title of the show. I can't remember. You really need to pivot into more voiceovers every day with yeah. all your voices that you do. I really want to do. I had some. I had a great cartoon audition for Cartoon Network the other day uh, for this like sort of show about a court, and it was like all these funny like little English voices and British voices and voices of different types of royalty and their and their servants and stuff like that. And it was a hoot. It was so much fun. And I was making my wife laugh in the other room. She was having to like put her hand over her mouth because I was doing all these silly voices and it required, you know, it requires such commitment and, and it's fun to do funny voices. It's fun to like make big giant cartoonish choices that you would never make on camera. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. I like exploring that. World. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh my God. This has been so wonderful. And I, I would love to invite you to come back on. I would love to come back show. on. You know, I will. I'll come back after um, after we've uh, after we've directed our movie with my daughter. I will come back and maybe I'll maybe Sadie will pop in and say hi, and we can we can ask her some questions about her first movie experience. Yeah, I would love that. Does that sound sounds like fun? really good. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, sounds like fun. I mean, there's just so much we could talk about because, like, I'm like, oh, I was on Law and Order too, like SVU. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was really cool. <laughs> Did you work with Mariska could, like, on SVU? Did you, did you, did you work um, with Mariska Hardy I didn't. I worked with Ice-T. Oh yeah. He's great. The blonde lady. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Okay. I got you. I'm names today are just not sticking with me. Yeah. I, no, I mean, we're almost like two hours in right now. So like, <laughs> <laughs> our brains are like, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's time no. to, yeah. Maybe it's time to, time to wrap it up. But I, but I really have, it's just a, it's just a testament to your wonderful interviewing skills and, and your, uh, your interest in the world and your love of life. And I, I really appreciate you having me on. It's a real privilege. And, uh, I have a lot of gratitude for being here to talk with you. Mm, I receive it. It means a lot. Thank you so much. Cool. I really, really appreciate that. Thank yeah. You. And I know there's been, yeah. And I know there's been so much value for the person tuning in. I normally say share this with one person, but please go ahead and share this with like five to 10 different people. Everyone loves entertainment. Everyone loves theater, movies, TV shows. A lot of people want to be actors, had dreams of being an actor. And we just had an amazing guest on, Eric Jensen. Would love for you to re-listen to the episode. Take notes. When you pass on the episode, let them know in advance. Take notes because there's some really cool pointers to write down. Share it on social media. Make sure you're subscribing and liking. Definitely check out the show notes. Follow Eric. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having oh. me. Oh, what? You want to mention oh. my podcast? Oh, oh, two things. Two yes. things. One, two things. One, we do giveaways every single episode. So it doesn't matter if you're listening to this episode today or four years from now. There's an email or the contact. Write in Eric Jensen for the subject and enter in the giveaway and maybe you can have a 15 minute call with Eric, maybe a, a signed headshot. So, you know, anything could happen. Uh, we have a lot of uh, artists on the show. So we're always doing giveaways no matter what it is. So when you hear it, it's not too late. I like to include you. You're, we're a part of the ripple effect. We're caring and sharing and, and gifting and giving so much. So um, sure. it's my pleasure to make sure that you win something. Yes. And then yes. Um, please I'll put it in the show notes, but what's your, 
podcast? Um, I have a podcast with my friend Phaedra Al Casey, and it's the two of us talking about Dungeons and Dragons and storytelling. Um, it's called Bard Quest Empire. It's on all of the podcast uh, platforms, and it's the two of us talking to some of the best storytellers of our time, including the uh, the main showrunner of the Walking Dead universe, uh, uh, people like Joel Marsh Garland, who starred in uh, Orange is the New Black. You know, just uh, you know, really, really great storytellers from actors to directors to writers to video game designers, and we talk about Dungeons and Dragons and the influence it's had on their storytelling overall. And it's a, it's a, we, we the episodes are about ninety minutes each, and they're it's a good listen on the subway. This has been one of my favorite episodes. Thank Mine you so too. much. I appreciate you. <laughs> I yeah, appreciate you too, been, Katie. It's been a lot of fun. I mean, I could literally keep going, but I'm just like want to be really mindful. So copy that. Copy um, that. I hear you. Okay. Make sure you're liking, subscribing, and sharing this with at least five to ten people. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Kitty Key, over and out. <laughs>